All right, guys. Hello, hello. Let me see here. Let me get my little ducks in a row. What is even the point of going solo if you're not really going solo? Welcome, guys. It's Night Shift with Andrea up late. It's a nice Tuesday night, and we are going to do the thing. Can you guys see me, hear me, dance with me, something, anything? Maybe. All right. Hey, guys. It's so good to see you guys in the chats. Thank you very much um, for showing up. Y'all been sending me messages all day. So, look, Dave was on here. He be big dad something dave was on here uh you guys know him as also a buddy of mike the cops we tried for minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes to get uh our audio is not compatible so we've learned that we probably shouldn't meet in person nothing is compatible here uh the computers screamed it at us we tried we tried we tried but he promised he'd come back and we would try to do another show together at another time so, um, you know, if you want to go on and gracefully bow out now, you can. He's not going to show up um, or he's not going to come back. But if you're in it to win it, we are going to talk about 1984 in Argos, Indiana. Um, hey, Davey. Hey, Casey Anthony. Hey, everybody. So I will try to engage the chats a little bit since it's just me and I'm not used to talking consistently for like a whole hour. So, uh I'll probably break it up and, and talk to you guys. So if you have questions or anything else, uh, definitely if you're in the chats, let me know, say hey, and uh, let's get started. Um, so this is the case of Darlene Hulse. Her last name is H-U-L-S-E. It's not a widely, widely known case, and there's really not a whole lot uh, about it out there. Kind of any of the sources you read, uh, it, it all kind of is very succinct and stops at the same point. This is a case that has gone cold since 1984. So we are approaching four decades now. We're almost 40 years into this. Uh, I will say that I'm careful to um, talk about other crime podcasts in the sense that I want to give them credit where credit is due. I also know that sometimes I find some, uh, you know, inconsistencies in stories. I don't think any of it is of malintent, but sometimes if you're not real careful, you can kind of report on things incorrectly. And I'm sure it's happened to me. Uh, some places seem to have that hiccup a little more often than others. But I will say that uh, the deck investigates. So if you're not familiar, Crime Junkie, Ashley Flowers also hosts the deck investigates. Now they did do a big deep dive on this one. Uh, I think she grew up not very far from where this took place and was able to kind of locally uh, have more resources there and things like that, but definitely got a little bit more information out of listening to some of that the past few days. But we're going to be talking, like I said, about Darlene Hulse. Darlene was uh, 28 years old in 1984, and she was a wife and mother of three. So they kind of got started right off the rip. Her daughters were eight, six, and then a little girl named Kristen, who was almost one. In fact, Kristen turned a year old, I believe, two days after the incident took place that we're going to talk about. Uh, a little bit about Argos, Indiana at that time. I think they were a town of like less than 1,500 in population, very small town. And that's important because we talk about this when we talk about police departments all the time and investigations, right? And we we never want to speculate or, you know, just make the assumption that the ball was dropped. Sometimes the ball wasn't dropped. They just don't have the experience or even physically the manpower, right? So um, 
I think at the time, Argos had either three or four deputies on their police department, depending on where what you, source you look at. So that's what we're that's what we're dealing with here. So it's important to keep that in mind as we move forward with the investigation. All right. Um, so Darlene, like I said, she was married to her husband who was named Ron. She was just known to be, they say, kind of quiet. She didn't have a whole lot of um, she had a few good friends, but, you know, not this big friend circle. I think she kind of kept her head down. She had three small children, of course. Uh, they went to church. Her husband, Ron, has been quoted to say things like really most of their activities outside of the home were church events. So like, you know, their Wednesday night potlucks and Sunday evening church things, things like that. Um, and that they were very frugal. You know, he said they may go out to eat once every month or two. You know, they really wanted to keep their money tight. And she would even say things her daughters now remember her saying when they were six and eight, things like, oh, you know, let's not buy that or let's go on and put this money here because you girls are going to go to college, you know. So even when they were that small, she was kind of instilling that lesson in them. She, um, I believe she like made mo most of their clothes, their bedding, things like that. So she was a stay-at-home mom doing what stay-at-home moms do, particularly in 1984, right? So this morning, it's a Friday, and it was August 17th uh, of 1984, and Ron had gone to work. He left earlier that morning. Around 9 o'clock, we know that in that morning that her father-in-law stopped by. Now, her in-laws lived just about a quarter of a mile up the road. We will, I'm going to funny like a different streaming service right now so we're gonna pay attention to that stuff and get those kinks knocked out but I'm saying that to you because I'm not going to be able to provide you photos tonight I'll definitely put them on Instagram if you follow me there I'll put them on YouTube as well I know some of you don't uh have Instagram and so uh number one please get it and number two you can always come back and find this stuff on YouTube because I'll be posting here as well all right but to give you an idea of the of the landscape there, this was very much a farming type community. So think pretty rural. If you were to look at an aerial view, you would see like older highways um, and then just giant plots of green where different crops would grow. And so then you may see a house on the corner and then plots and plots of uh, farming land. And then, you know, maybe another house quite a ways down there. So like I said, her father-in-law stopped by around nine o'clock that morning. He brought them some bananas for a snack kind of just hung out in the front yard with Darlene and the kids and, you know, kind of played with them for a little while and leaves to go home, which was about a quarter of a mile up the road. So not very far. They live very close to the kids, close to their uh, grandparents. So <clears throat> they were on the corner lot of road, a road called 2020B and old US 31. Uh, that won't mean a whole lot. I'll put some maps up, like I said, though, later, and you'll be able to take a look at what that kind of looks like when we talk about a potential suspect later on in the show. Um, so she's home with her daughters this day, uh, and it was the baby, Kristen's doctor's appointment was coming up. Nothing that I read, and there's a reason this is important to me, but nothing that I read states that the baby was sick. Uh, to me, it sounds like probably the one-year well check. I don't want to speculate, but that's what I'm assuming this to be because it sounds like it was a pre-made doctor's appointment, um, and that that actually matters. So she had told the older girls, the six- and eight-year-old, to go on and get in the tub and start getting cleaned up while she feeds the baby and gets her dressed to go to her doctor's appointment. So they do, well, <clears throat> excuse me, around 9.30 that morning while the girls are in the tub, they hear a knock at the door. So their mom evidently goes, you know, to the door. They say they can hear her talking a little bit. And then uh, 
Next thing you know, they hear what the oldest daughter will remember as a growl. She thinks that she hears a growl in there and she and the sister in the tub are kind of playing and giggling and they kind of get excited because they think maybe their dad brought them a puppy home um, or a dog. He has done that once before. And so as children do, you know, they get excited. And so the oldest daughter gets out of the tub and kind of walks around the corner and into the living room. And she finds the farthest thing from that possible. When she comes around the corner, she sees her mother and a man that she'll say she, to this day, she, she did not recognize this man whatsoever. And by her mom's demeanor, neither did her mother, but they are physically struggling and fighting with one another. Um, it's a scene that's difficult to think about because Darlene had the baby in her arms. So she's got like a one-year-old, you know, on her hip while she is physically trying to restrain this man from harming her. Uh, the little girl that is standing there watching this take place, uh, she now is an adult her sisters will talk she doesn't say it so much her sisters will say how she was saying then at the time or at least the other sister would um things like uh she was screaming at him she ran to try to get the phone she will say now that in her head like they had a gun at home that in her head she was trying to get to the gun so that child at eight was willing and wanting to fight back and protect her mom at all costs uh so instead she gets near the scuffle uh, mom and man are physically fighting and wrestling baby in tow. The little girl grabs the phone. He's able to rip it off of the wall. Remember 1984. Okay. So it's a wall receiver. He rips it off. Uh, one of the reports was that he ripped it off the wall, but another, I think he actually just ripped the, uh, handheld portion out like the cord, ripped the cord out because the base receiver, I believe was still attached to the wall. So as he does that, he reaches to grab the girl and he kind of grabs at her hair and her shoulder, but she gets away and probably honestly aided by the fact that she'd been in the tub. So she was nude and wet. Uh, so she slipped out of his grasp. And as she's doing so, her mom is screaming and saying um, she's screaming at him not to hurt her babies. And she's screaming at her daughter at the top of her lungs to run. She says to get out of here, run. Daughter goes back to the bathtub, grabs sister they take off running naked, wet down the street toward their grandparents' house. Now, one thing that's always of uh, note to me when I've been reading about this, that it, it didn't matter one way or another. I will tell you that the baby that she was holding is alive. That woman is now uh, around 40, 41 years old. And she's actually kind of at the helm of trying to steer the ship of this cold case and find her mom's uh, killer. So the baby is fine, but I'll say that the two older girls have said uh, to this day that their biggest regret is not getting the baby. And you think about that when you think about how we view things later with a different perspective, you know, now that they know what happened to their mother, uh, I think it just horrifies them to think that something could have happened to their sister, but she is okay. Um, so they are running up the street. They will tell you later when police interview them, which they absolutely did, that they saw a car. There was a car outside their driveway. All right. Now, there had not been a car because their dad was at work. Remember, this is a stay-at-home mom of three children. As far as I know, as far as I can tell, they only had the one vehicle, and it was gone, which would also give chance for someone to think that someone might be home alone, right? In, in 1984, it would be very likely that a mom might be home. Uh, so they will talk about how they describe the car that they saw later, but they did see a car out front. They run up to grandmother and grandfather's house. 
who, as you can imagine, see their screaming naked granddaughters banging at the door, uh, horrified. And so they can't figure out what's going on. They can't really discern from what the girls are saying. Uh, but they kind of surmise that maybe there's a, there's a break-in, maybe someone is robbing their home. That's kind of the best they can get to with this. So they call 911, grandmother calls. Um, the address has like three similar numbers. I believe it was something like 8886 or something like that. Either way, they, this gets a little uh, confused. The numbers get transposed upon talking to dispatch and uh, the grandmother sees the police car driving by and she's on the phone with dispatch saying, no, 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 you, you know, you passed it. So they turn back around and they get to the home. Uh, there is a picture of uh, Kristen, the baby, that is tough to look at because while she is alive and well, uh, she's covered in blood and it's not her blood. She was not physically harmed during this somehow and thankfully, um, but uh, she was covered in her mother's blood. So police get there. They find the baby on the living room floor uh, and there is no sign of Darlene. Now there is sign of a struggle. Uh, looks like a pretty, pretty good struggle. Kind of some furniture's tipped, pushed aside. Uh, and then we had, remember, I say, remember we had, you're not all as old as I am, but we used to always have uh, fire, like the fire poker set on the mantle or in front of the fireplace, right? So usually it would consist of like like a metal base. It's kind of heavy. You don't want to knock it over brass or whatever, likely brass at that time. And it would have like the little shovel and, you know, a couple of little tools to move your logs around and kind of disperse some of the ash. And then the fire poker. Now, fire pokers have come around in a few different true crime stories. Like, did you guys listen to uh, the Michael Peterson, the staircase case? I don't even know. I'd like to cover that, but I'm not, there's so much there. Uh, but a fire poker was like an instrumental piece to that case. Um, so the fire poker was missing. That's one thing we do know. We did not find any, uh, any other weapon. There were no knives or uh, there wasn't a gun. There was nothing like that. Uh, there were some pieces of duct tape that were left behind that we at some point realized didn't belong to the whole family. So the duct tape had been brought with whoever entered her house. Okay. The fire poker though is missing, uh, but it's handle remains. So it's almost as though someone was using it and it, it came out of the little handle. Okay. So the handles on the ground, there is blood uh, all over that carpet. And then there is a blood trail that consists of kind of two lines, two parallel lines, uh, coming out of the home and they go over kind of a little gravel landscaping bed and then into the driveway to uh, assumptively where his car would have been parked. Uh, now let's back up a little bit. We do have as police kind of start canvassing things and asking questions and kind of coming out with what they do know. And they have a couple, an adult couple that had driven by not far away Um about of of a car that was like a 1970s like 74 75 model uh kind of you name it there have been a couple of different cars named mainly they say Plymouth everyone who has described this car describes it with eerily similar detail uh that it's like a little damage to the bumpers the rear bumpers that it's a bit rusty it's kind of in ill repair and that the hood uh is 
there are two different stories. Some people say that the hood is a different color. And then a couple of people have stated that the hood looked uh, hand painted. So like, not like you would normally have a car painted. All right. So that's interesting. Now the girls, the two daughters, remember I said they ran out of the home up to their grandparents' house. Uh, they early on during this, giving their statements and answering questions uh, from police, one of the girls said that it was a blue car and one said that it was a green car. Now I do find this very interesting and you know, something to keep in mind when we talk about a lot of these cases um, or as police investigate a lot of other kinds of crimes, they said that for years and it always bothered them because that was the only part of their story that was inconsistent. And I know that blue and green are similar in color and particularly in a traumatic event like that, uh, but it bugged the girls because they're pretty much on the same page with everything else. So uh, years later, as they're being talked to again about their mother's case as adults, uh, they were then presented with paint samples. So think you go to the hardware store and can get all the samples of paint. And so they were presented with a lot of paint samples of blue and green paint swatches. And they individually alone picked the same color. It wound up being kind of like a teal-ish green color. So they saw the same color. They were just describing it differently, right? So that's, I don't know, I thought that was an interesting uh, way to figure that out. And also an interesting little thing that could provide a hiccup in a case when really it's not a hiccup at all. Uh, they saw the same thing. So that's what we know about the car. And that's what we know about it leaving. Someone else saw, said that they saw or heard the car doing kind of like peeling out as it was leaving the driveway or in front of the house area. And it did leave uh, marks in the road. All right. So he got out in a hurry. All right. Does anybody have any questions so far? I don't even know. Like, how can I? I can't. No one's. Um, uh, it's just me. It's just me talking. All right. So um, the, like I told you, the baby was on the floor. She had blood all over her. There was blood everywhere. And we do have the pieces of duct tape and the fire poker handle, but no fire poker. All right. So the next day, about six miles away, there was a man in town, um, an older gentleman who was, who had bought some property and was going to clear timber. In fact, I think he was a timber buyer. Uh, if I'm not mistaken. So he was out in this area of field of, you know, with kind of wooded field uh, to look at this timber to market. And he's, he's walking through there and he found uh, Darlene's body and called authorities. Now he's never been thought of or questioned or looked at. That's never been an idea. A few, there have been people like little whisperings of people to say, you know, that that's convenient and um, you know, oh, his, you know, that land of his, that's funny because when did we hear this? When did we hear this? We heard this with Delphi. We heard the guy who lost his mind saying that it had to be, um, Ron Logan's, uh, case that Ron Logan had to have been the murderer because his property butted up to there and it was too easy. And I mean, he was selling his soul on this fact. And we found out that that was not the fact, right? So I'm not worried about the timber buyer. I do think that, unfortunately, the poor man stumbled upon a just really gruesome scene of this um, dead young woman. So let's talk a little bit about what police thought, uh, like, moving forward, right? So they started to think that this was a botched robbery. They um, think that that it was, there was no talk of um, 
uh, sexual intention or anything like that. They think it was a botched robbery. Nothing indicates that it was a botched robbery, by the way, um, at this point, and even pretty early on. And they said that from day one, uh, the the original medical examiner or pathologist, I believe his name is, starts with an R, Rick, maybe. Uh, I'm going to find that and we will, I'll say it correctly. Um, yeah, Rick Hoover. So Rick Hoover currently practicing still, by the way, this many years later, um, or at least as of, I should say, two or three years ago. So Rick said that her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Okay. So let's talk about that. Let's look at what that autopsy looked at. Like, okay. So initially, uh, the cause of death was ruled blunt force trauma. Uh, she did have lacerations. I've seen the pictures of the, uh, autopsy report where they draw in, you know, on a blank body where the injuries occurred and what kind of injuries they are. Uh, she did have multiple lacerations to the head. So you can imagine that's another thing that points to this incredibly bloody scene, right? So bye, Bosco. I just saw you're leaving. Um, so there was no evidence of a skull fracture, though. So nowhere in the autopsy report was any skull fracture mentioned, uh, just that she died from blunt force trauma to the head. Now, I mean, you can get I'm, I'm looking in the distance because I'm thinking out thinking out loud a little bit, but you can get hit in the head and potentially get hit in a way that that doesn't fracture your skull that could concuss you or cause swelling or something like that, that ultimately would lead you to your death. Uh, but we don't have that. The report doesn't say that she had any edema or swelling of her brain. Um, we just know that they said blunt force trauma, but no skull fractures. She did have some mild hemorrhaging around what they call the right parietal area. So that would be kind of the middle part of the top of your head, a little bit of hemorrhaging there. Uh, the autopsy report that was given by Rick Hoover uh, stated also that there was a focal fracture to the hyoid bone. Okay. If you've listened to crime enough, you've heard of the hyoid bone. If you know no other bone in the body, because that's the teeny, teeny, tiny little bone that is sits itself right in your throat. So if your cause of death is strangulation, that will be broken every time. All right. It's teeny tiny and it doesn't take a lot to break it. Um, generally a struggle would not do it, but strangulation manually would. Now it's never really touched on again, though. Like there is the mention that the, there was a focal fracture of that hyoid bone. They don't really talk about it again. So the autopsy talks about hemorrhaging to what they call the strap muscles of your neck. So that's the muscles around your neck that allow you to kind of turn your head left and right and up and down. So there was some hemorrhaging there. Um, and that would also be consistent with strangulation. Um, so Dr. Hoover would never really speak on his findings. Evidently he's spoke, he's been the pathologist on a couple of bigger cases and doesn't like to be reached out to again, which, okay, that's fair. Uh, but he won't kind of explain these inconsistencies. Um, and you know, pathologists do disagree sometimes and that's fine. But so most currently a doctor named Will Smock, uh, he's the police surgeon with the Louisville Metro PD, and he's the medical director there. He goes on to talk about how he feels she was strangled, and he thinks that most likely the killer continued to squeeze after death. Uh, and the reason would be uh, because they initially said that there was no hemorrhaging around the fractures there. Um, 
but there was meaning he had to have started when she was still alive and blood was circulating. Um, so I don't know. Uh, are you guys, who's listening? Hey, Salamander. Yeah. So, you know, what do you think? What was the motive? Why did this guy come to the house? I think that when they initially said, um, when they initially said that, uh, the motive was going to be a robbery and it was, you know, whatever. Uh, no, I don't think so for a minute. I also don't think that you guys, how did I trick you in the chat? What are y'all talking about? I'm looking. Um, what is the prank? So when uh, they initially said that about a robbery gone bad, I don't think that he even meant to kill this woman. Uh, I 100% think that this was sexually motivated. Now the autopsy did say that she had uh, zero, there was zero sexual assault. All right. Keep that in the back of your head as we keep talking. So I do think that he came in and he didn't count on potentially three children in the home. I definitely don't think that he counted on her fighting back the way she did. And I don't think that he counted on a child running out and seeing him and he's got multiple eyes on him, all right? Because also, um, also, why did he take her body? So that's what bothered me when I thought, okay, if he killed her there at the house, like if she died at home, which initially that's what police were kind of thinking, for what reason are you going to mess up your clothing more, mess up your car uh, risk anyone seeing you then have to dispose of a body you know that now granted keep in mind this was 1984 so uh you know it's not like everybody's brain was prevalent on dna you know it's not like you know now you know where when we see these things we think didn't they know that we'd find their dna well in 1984 you're not thinking too much about that all right there wasn't a whole lot of that going on but uh, he did. Why would he take her? It makes no sense. So you start thinking maybe she was not dead. Maybe she was alive. Maybe she's seen him. She's alive. Her kids seen him. Now her child has gone off. Kids are gone to call for help. And he knows that she told them to run call for help. And they do. Uh, so he knows he's got a very little amount of time before he has to either finish the job he set out to do or just get rid of, take her with him and leave completely. And I fully believe that that's uh, what he was doing. So uh, we talked about the husband being gone. There wasn't a car in the driveway. I don't think he was watching the house. I don't think this is a situation of him stalking the home and knowing. So I don't think that if that's the case, he would have picked a house with three kids. I don't know. That's all speculation, but that just kind of seems like a lot to handle if you're in his shoes. Um, so we do have a witness that gave a statement. This is pretty interesting. She is still alive today. Uh, and she was in the car and she, her statement wasn't ever really given a whole ton of, a whole lot of credibility. I think it was kind of like, listen to, they took the statement, they recorded it. I've got it here. I'm going to play for you. But um, I don't think there was a lot of weight given to it. And to me, I think it is very telling actually. So uh, she at the time uh, was 21 years old. Her name is Cindy Sellers. She was an art student in 1984 and she was in the backseat of her parents' car. She and her brother in the back, 
they were going shopping for some things. And so she remembers that she was lying kind of with her, you know, face smushed against the window, bored out of her mind. Um, and her car, her brother was against the other car window and they were traveling, like, like I said, to shop. She said, and her story now mirrors completely what she said 40 years ago. She said that there was a black Cadillac in front of them and it was going very, very slow. And her dad was fussing about it and had to slow down a whole lot. And so then she looked over and saw a 1970s model, rusty green car with damaged bumper and hood discolored. She said that she saw a man driving and a woman was in the passenger seat kind of slumped. So let's hear what she had to say. Let's hear what she had to say about that. Slumped back in the seat with blood on her and a grayish looking skin. At this time, the driver placed something over the upper part of the body of the female and the driver of the vehicle glared at the family. Okay. So he placed something over her and then he glared over at the car, right? Um, so... Sorry, I want to make sure that I'm not missing anything. So she said that she saw a little bit more movement in the car. And when that the steering wheel and he swatted her away and she kind of crumpled into the door. And then that was the last of it. it she, they, he turned around. I turned around to look because I wondered what was going on. And he had turned the car around to go back down the, the road they were on. All right. Um, so as you heard what she said, that he that the woman kind of reached up for the steering wheel and he bats her away. Now she's already said that it was a woman uh, that was gray in color. Uh, in other, in a more lengthy interview, you'll hear more of her statement that says that the woman was gray in color. He was wearing a white t-shirt. Uh, she thought just laying there in the car, looking out the window immediately, just something was awry. She said the woman did not look good and he's trying to kind of cover her up. So then he goes down the street and makes a U-turn and goes in the other direction. So he, he quits traveling in the direction he was going in. Um, so they were going northbound initially, meaning the man and Darlene. But the direction they were going was actually the opposite of the direction if you went from Darlene's house to where her body was then found. But if he turned around and went back that way, that's exactly the direction he would be going would be to the woods that's only interesting in the sense that um for the longest time authorities and other people in town have said that you know it has to be uh someone that knows the area well or had planned out that area because you wouldn't really know necessarily about that access to the woods right there otherwise and uh and maybe that's the case but also it sounds like at the last minute he saw that he had eyes on him and turned around to go in a different direction so it's an interesting little tidbit. All right, we've got a few. Uh, actually, the suspect list we could have, and there are multiple shows and uh, recordings on this, but you can go on and on and on. As you can imagine, in a town like this, as you kind of get in the weeds with it a little bit, you find some similarities in people. There's more sexual assault than anybody would like to know uh, going on in that town. We have some other similar murders eventually, like when you kind of put it all together from a couple years prior to a few years later. Um, and then that can open the door to have multiple possibilities on suspects. Um, but here are some things that caught 
people's eyes that at least at the time they were whispering about. Again, this is a cold case. We don't have, um, I, I don't even believe a suspect is named at this point. It's not being currently worked except for the people who are now um, like change.org has a petition uh, through her daughters that have petitioned for this case to be reopened and investigated. Um, but we have a guy named Ray Oviat, and he was a uh, church leader. He was a pastor at a church that they briefly went to. There was a time they were kind of church hopping to find um, a church home there. And they briefly went to this First Baptist Church. He was convicted of child molestation in 1986. So that is two years after Darlene's death. Uh, this, to me, holds no weight. There was a rumor around town that Darlene had maybe come by the church or played piano at the church and walked in and, and saw him doing something he shouldn't be doing with the child there, and that essentially her death was at his hands to silence her. Um, her family says that she never actually played the piano while they were at that uh, church, and this just doesn't seem, this doesn't look like a hit. It doesn't look like a planned murder that he had come to, you know, silence her. Uh, we do have this interesting case where there's a man named um, this, this couple, Larry and Bonnie Berger had this dude that lived with them that um, one of the sources I read, call him, I'll call him this just for consistency. It doesn't matter. It's a pseudonym, but call him Daryl Lemon. Uh, they're not calling him by his real name because he is not currently a suspect and has not been charged. But evidently, Daryl lived with Larry and Bonnie at the time of the murders. They were initially questioned because he looked uh, he looked the part. So what I didn't tell you earlier is that when the girls gave an eyewitness, gave their testimony on or their uh, witness statement on what the bad guy looked like, they were both very consistent and very specific. So he was tall and very lean with kind of a longer nose, the sharper nose, I think one of them said, um, close cut blonde hair uh, and just kind of lighter complexion. All right. So <clears throat> excuse me. So that's what this Daryl guy looked like. And I think he had been in and out of a little bit of trouble uh, with the law. So evidently, when police questioned Larry and Bonnie about their roommate, Daryl, they kind of stated like, no, he couldn't have done it. Yeah, we do have that car in the driveway because they had a 1974 Plymouth uh, that was not in the best condition. And she said, though, her timeline of events that day were that he was home at 10 o'clock that morning and, you know, she had the car with her at work and and these kinds of things and just made it sound like there's no way Daryl could have been involved. They did at the time, though, when initially questioned, both Bonnie and Larry said that they fully thought that he was somebody who could have done this. Um, they they do see him capable of murder. However, he couldn't have done it because he essentially had an alibi, which was them at the time. Well, later they moved away to Chicago. And when they moved away, they reached back out to police. All right. So now they want to talk a little bit more because evidently they were terrified of him. So when they reach back out, they say that Larry wanted to kick Daryl out of the house. All right. So he had, he'd been like manipulating them and uh, they kind of all did drugs together. Like they smoked weed together, but I guess somehow this Daryl guy had some sort of a hold over them. So he was, I guess, um, you know, I don't know, cultish. They say that they were kind of like in a, in a zone with him or something like they couldn't get out of his grasp a little bit, but 
she then says, Bonnie comes back to say now that she left home around eight o'clock that morning. And her words were that she remembered, quote, looking over at the whole's home. When asked why, she said, I don't, I don't know. I just remember kind of looking at it and thinking about it. Okay. So then she went uh, to her mom's house right after that. And then, well, she'd gone, I'm sorry. She'd run an errand. She came back. And when she came back by the home, there were cops everywhere. And she went immediately to her mother's house where she tells her mother that she's afraid Daryl had something to do with this because uh, she, she saw the cops there and she, she was just worried that maybe he would have had something to do with it. This is her new story once they moved away. Right. So she said that she got home around 3.30 that day and said that Daryl uh, was home. She said that he had always been paranoid of police officers since she'd known him. So he always, like, particularly because of this, dressed nicely with a clean-shaven face and short-cropped hair uh, to, I guess, never look the part. I don't know, never look to look suspicious. Uh, but pretty soon after this, he started, um, he grew out a beard and he let his hair grow out. Um, I don't know. This story is kind of weird because people go back and forth with this. And she said that while Daryl lived with them, he carried around a black book. He called his Bible. She said that he went on and on about this, uh, these people in Chicago who would buy and sell babies on the black market and that you could get a ton of money for them. Uh, he said that she said that he would often tell them about their own children, that they could make a killing off of their blonde hair, blue eyes, blue eyed children. Uh, I feel like that's probably when he's leaving my house. I don't think he's my roommate at this point. Um, and he said, she said that they were scared to reveal all of this initially because they were terrified of him. He had been in a motorcycle club from Arizona. Uh, once they moved away, they finally told it. And they said, after what happened to Darlene, like I said, his hair grew out. He grew a beard. They said a pair of pants belonging to him went missing. Uh, and I guess they recognized this because they did the laundry. I feel like that's a stretch. Um, they said that he started acting not normal at all and began to have angry out outbursts on occasion. And he even became violent with their children once or twice. Again, you're moving out, roommate. All right. Uh, Larry said one night he, he, Larry had gotten so suspicious of this and so suspicious of the idea of Daryl committing this crime that he went out to his back property to search for the missing fire poker. Why, why did anyone know that the fire poker was missing? So that's my number one question. I feel like that's not, that's not what we're putting out there folks. Um, but somehow the public knew that the fire poker was missing. So Larry went to search for it. Uh, he dug up a big drum they had buried in the woods they kept their pot in thinking maybe he'd find it out there um they even thought that he had stolen their motorcycle that only gets interesting there was a weird couple of statements from people we're not going to get into but that saw a motorcycle traveling at a high speed kind of around that time that that's a whole separate theory um anyway we'll go on and on about it but a behavioralist has since come back to say that some of these things like in his behavior was odd and could have been indicative of someone who could do this how he changed his dress like his appearance so drastically uh how he kind of had this certain control over them how she went out of her way to say to talk about driving by the house which is pretty interesting right because why would you put yourself why would you twice put yourself at the scene of this crime and then say you don't know why you looked at the house unless with this weird control he had over her she wanted to put the car there right 
uh, so that she could say she was in the car by the home. Uh, anyway, we eventually realized there's a whole nother family they dive into that have four brothers. One of them has this guy. I just gave you the pseudonym. Daryl Lemon has his same name. It's all very bizarre. But we also have, and this is weird, a torn piece of prescription paper that had this guy named Ron Ewings on it. Uh, it was found at Darlene's house outside the day that they were investigating the crime. So uh, on August 17th, the day that she was murdered and went missing, this prescription pad or piece of paper, excuse me, with his name on it. Uh, when they contacted him about this, he just said that, oh, maybe that's from when they had a, um, <laughs> maybe that's when they had a um, yard sale. But the family said immediately then that they never, ever had yard sales and they never questioned this guy again. You know, that's a quick phone call now. If he's still, if he's still alive, as of a couple of years ago, he was, that's a real quick phone call to try to clear up why in the world his name on that piece of paper would be in the yard. Uh, also, there's a theory about the, um, there was a refrigerator repairman who was supposed to come evidently, uh, evidently was supposed to come fix the fridge that morning at 930. But his statement is that he drove by the house and realized he had not called first and that he makes it a point to call before he shows up. So he just drove on down the road and was going to call later. Well, this is kind of super weird by Abby. Um, because why, why would you call for the appointment as you're pulling up to the house? I don't, why would she make a 930 refrigerator repairman appointment when she knows her daughter has a doctor's appointment at 10 o'clock? That's why I said earlier in the show that it's important to know whether or not the kid quickly got sick and she was making her a sick visit appointment um, on the fly or if it was a pre-planned appointment. Her doctor's office was about 30 minutes away. So she would, in fact, be leaving the house at 930. We do know, however that the refrigerator repairman had a son who at the time would have been around 21. The suspect is, is being said to be around 25. All right. And uh, the refrigerator repairman had a son who is blonde and blue and lean and would occasionally do jobs with his father. And uh, so he kind of knew his route and he later was uh, convicted of some sexual crimes. So that's, Another little side note, right? So like I say, the more you get into this stuff, the more it's like, well, maybe it's this guy. Maybe it's that guy. Uh, there were other strings of rapes throughout the year, uh, throughout the years in those areas. There is a case of a little girl. Let me pull it up because I want to make sure I don't tell you the wrong thing here. Um, Brandy Peltz. Now you can find a lot of information on her murder as well. She was 11 years old. She was found dead in her home. Um, in 19, I think 86. Yes. Yeah, so two years later, found dead in her home, face down in the bathtub. She had been strangled. Uh, there wound up being another child, a little girl named April, who was sexually assaulted and strangled as well. So there are some people who think that actually his his motive was to come for one of the children rather than the mom. I feel like that's unlikely at 9:30 in the morning. Uh. I, I fully believe that he came in with the intention of assaulting the mother sexually. He had duct tape with him. He didn't have any other weapons. That's when he had to use what was in the house, that fire poker. Uh, and I think, I don't know. I think that that's fully what it is. People try to connect these things. You know, I think it feels good if you can find a rhyme or reason and connect one bad guy with a lot of 
bad things that happened. And sometimes that's not exactly the case. Um, I do want to play before we go. And then if you guys want to chat for a minute, we can, but uh, just so you can hear Darlene, she often recorded the children and asked them little questions and things like that. And uh, uh, you can hear her helping them with their letters and their words and asking them questions. So um, let's see here. All right. So that's super sad. That was actually filmed in, I think, 1980. So four years before she was murdered. Um, uh, not sure what you guys think. Tell me what you think in the chats if you want. We know that Ron is still alive. Not too long after this happened, within a couple of years, uh, he did go on and get remarried. Um, some people think that that's a little suspect and quick, but, you know, he was raising three daughters. Uh, I think it was another lady from the church. I don't think that's suspect actually at all. It's kind of sad when you think about it, though, because the youngest daughter, the one that was found with her mother's blood all over her uh, when this happened, really only knows this woman, you know, to be her mom because she was so little when all of this happened. So she considers this her mom. Um, so anyway, it's it's an interesting case and it's very, uh, gosh, terribly sad, but Ron is still alive and the girls are all um, adults with kids of their own now. And of course they're, you know, just their goal, their hope is that they can find something out uh, and, and, get some break in this case and particularly for their father uh before anything happens to him sorry to end it on such a sad note guys maybe i'll bring something a little i don't know not so sad in a crime show next week we'll see you guys are sending amazing ideas though so don't think that that goes unnoticed uh i read through every one of them i'm doing a lot better about that lately okay uh, a few of you have said things like, hey, did you ever look into this? And I'm honest if I didn't, then I'll say no, because I forgot. So send it again. That's fine. You can always ask me. Um, I'm always here and like to chat with you guys. And look, I will tell you, I won't make it all sappy, but this is all new. This kind of happened quickly. And I was afraid that, you know, it would just, I don't know, like that I wouldn't get it going again, or it just kind of wouldn't work out. And I am fully confident moving forward that it will. I'm actually getting more and more excited about it. Um, and y'all in the chats have been, I know I put it in my story, but I truly from my heart, thank you so much because you really gave me a ton of encouragement. You did put the wind back in my sails. Uh, I miss you guys. And I love seeing you in the chats. I can't wait to do some more stuff. I've got Bill Schofield over at minor league studios. We are making some new shirts. These are actually going to be pretty cool. Uh, they're going to have the fun tagline. See y'all next Tuesday. Cause sometimes it's just, you know, fun to be like that. Um, so uh, keep it up. Hey, Sandbag, thank you for showing up. Meat Potato, everybody, y'all have been amazing. Y'all have been so cool. And uh, and then and then and then moving forward, this is going to keep on keeping on. Uh, I will have some fun guests on. I've been talking to some fun people, and uh, there's some works in the books that I might wind up having a, a second podcast. So we'll see. We'll see what that might look like. So y'all can. Uh, Y'all can uh, speculate on that all you want or give me some ideas, but there's some good stuff happening. So I am now, I am not down in the dumps. I'm excited and I am uh, looking forward to moving forward. So uh, I guess with that said, guys, thanks for showing up and I'll see y'all next Tuesday. All right. Good night, y'all.
I mean, maybe. I don't really know how to turn this off, so. Okay, for real. Good night, y'all. <laughs>